The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Better, Tom. Thank you very much. Good. Thanks for your prayers. Good. And you? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being yeah, here. Absolutely. Father, the, uh, the emails continue to pour in, uh, especially after our video where we referenced Taylor Marshall and Ryan Grant and the video that they made on, on St. Robert Bellarmine and the, uh, the question of a heretical pope, the possibility of that. And uh, so I'd like to uh, answer one email in particular in regards to that program. Uh, this viewer says that uh, in that show, Father Jenkins spent about 15 minutes explaining the five opinions of Bellarmine and then accused Marshall and Grant of ad-libbing and embellishing. I take issue with this accusation because it seems like Father Jenkins did not watch the entire video in question. Their discussion around a council making a declarative statement is in fact straight from Bellarmine, just not the controversies. It actually comes from on councils, as they say multiple times in the video. A dishonest response that sets up a straw man helps no one. So, Father, please redo the video with an accurate analysis, critiques, and responses for the benefit of the faithful. What's your response to that email, <coughs> Father? Well, I think that uh, the viewer, uh, sometimes they talk about our observant and uh, noble viewer, you know, but uh, in this case, certainly this viewer uh, put something important here. And I, I didn't consider the remark I made to be an accusation exactly, uh, but I guess it certainly, well, at least came across that way. And um, but I, I, I got word of this while I was traveling over the weekend, and uh, came back and checked into it with the help of a very good soul, and uh, actually photocopied the relevant information here. And uh, the gentleman is, is quite right. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine did, in fact, address that very issue of calling a council. It, he didn't bring it up, as, as I recall, he didn't bring it up uh, in the book of controversies that we discussed and that Dr. Marshall and, uh, and uh, Ryan Grant had discussed, but he did bring it up in the fourth controversy, talking about the fourth general controversy, <coughs> uh, De Conciliis et Ecclesia Militante, on councils and the church militant. And uh, that's the fourth book uh, of this collection. And um, this appears in chapter 9, actually, Caput Nonum, as it's called. <clears throat> Fortunately, we were able to print out the, the actual Latin text of St. Robert Bellarmine, <clears throat> which I won't read, okay? Uh, but uh, it's an interesting chapter, chapter 9 of this uh, book 1, chapter 9 of of book one from this uh, fourth controversy. It's entitled De Utilitate Vel Etiam Necessitate Celebrandorum Conciliorum, concerning the utility or also the necessity of celebrating a council. So when he talks about the necessity of calling a council, 
He says a council can and even introduces the necessity of calling a council for these reasons. He gives six of them. And the first of them, he says, is uh, because of a new heresy that has arisen, that has to be addressed and condemned by the church. The second reason, he says, uh, because of schism among Roman pontiffs, which is an interesting way of putting it. But as you read through, it's clear he's talking about, well, at least it's clear to me anyway, that he's talking about a time when there's confusion as to who is the true Roman pontiff. <clears throat> Obviously, there can only be one right. at most. And uh, I mean, there are 260 times in the history of the church or so when there was no living Roman pontiff. A pope had died and another pope had not been elected. Um, but this has to do with when there are maybe two or three claimants to the, to the papacy. Obviously, uh, only one could be the true pope and uh, any else, anyone else would have to be an anti-pope, right? <clears throat> so that's another reason necessitating the calling of a council. And the third reason he gives is uh, the council must be called to offer resistance to the, a common enemy of the whole church. So if the church is uh, being attacked by a common enemy, then a council should be called to address that enemy. Uh, and um, the fourth reason he gives is relevant to this very question that we are talking about and that uh, Dr. Marshall and Ryan Grant brought up. The fourth reason he gives is suspicion of heresy in the Roman pontiff, if perhaps that should arise or should happen. <clears throat> or even uh, it would to address an incorrigible, incorrigible tyrant, if, if there's in, incorrigible tyranny going on, right? To address the question of an incorrigible tyranny. And uh, he says, then uh, it would be necessary to call a general council, either, he said, vel ad deponendum modificem, either for the sake of deposing the pontiff, curious choice of words, but that's what it says, vel ad deponendum con pontificem, either for deposing or to depose the pontiff, si in veneretur hereticus, if he should be found to be a heretic, hmm. if he should be found to be a heretic. And then he goes on and says, or, Certainly to admonish, to admonish the pontiff if he is seen to be incorrigible in his behavior. So those are, those are two reasons he gives for calling a general council to address that question. And he says, if he is a suspect of heresy. So he actually doesn't even extend it to the need of a, a fact that there's a manifest <clears throat> heresy here. He's talking about just suspicion of heresy in the Roman pontiff is enough to necessitate calling a general council to address that. And then if he's found to be a heretic, then to depose him. But St. Robert Bellarmine doesn't mean in this, if you keep reading, he, he uh, makes a distinction here that it wouldn't be the council audaciously, he says, audacter, deposing him. It would be a matter of really of simply making a declaration. What he's teaching is heresy. What he believes is heretical, right? Um, in any case, uh, there are translations of this. I think uh, uh, Ryan Grant himself offers a, a translation of this that is available, which I'd be interested in getting, actually. I haven't gotten it yet. But in any case, 
um, it's interesting that this is the fourth of six uh, reasons St. Robert Bellarmine gives in De Conchilis for the church needing to call a general council. By the way, the fifth reason he gives is because of the doubt concerning an election of the Roman pontiff. So if there's a doubtful election of the Roman pontiff, a council should be called to address that. The sixth reason he gives <coughs> for the general reform <coughs> of abuses and vices in the church. So it seems to me that <coughs> virtually all of these reasons are present. Well, pretty much <laughs> these reasons are present right now, militating for that. The trouble is, it gets back to what I was pointing out before, the first position is that the Pope couldn't possibly be heretical. The second position is that he could be even secretly heretical and would be immediately deposed. He would immediately lose the office. The third was he could be a manifest heretic and it could, you couldn't do anything about it. He would necessarily be the Pope anyway, regardless, even if he's a manifest heretic, which, as you recall, St. Robert Bellarmine, said no one believes, okay? He said no one holds to that position that a pope can be a manifest heretic, and it has no consequences as to whether he's the pope or not. But I pointed out that if they say that the necessity is to call a council today of bishops to address heresy in Francis, then that essentially relegates us to the third position, that there's nothing you can do about it, because he has packed the the, the Episcopacy and the College of Cardinals with modernists like himself. Yeah. And uh, they would be more of a mind to excommunicate those who have the faith rather than to denounce someone who, who, who is a heretic. So in any case, um, we have a very practical problem with that position. So I, I answer your question, I point out that uh, the, uh, the writer of the email is absolutely right on there, so I have to make an amendment there and say that uh, this does appear, in fact, in the writings of our development concerning a council, but that uh, that still raises the issue that I see, again, a practical question, a very practical, I think, practical question, is if the point made by St. Robert Bellarmine in position number five is that a pope would lose the, the papacy when he becomes a manifest heretic, <clears throat> but you'd have to summon a council of bishops to examine that, discuss it, dispute it, pronounce upon it, and then announce that, yes, this is heresy. Heresy. He is manifestly, um, let's say, believing, embracing, and professing heresy. Then you still have the question of, of the council saying, and now... You might, you know, in the sense that the practical consequence is, at this point, he must not be regarded as the Pope. Or he, he had lost the papacy when, in fact, he had pronounced the manifest heresy five months, six months, a year ago. And again, you get back to the question, well, if the, if the council were to say, now we pronounce this fact as a declaration, and now he ceases to be the Pope, for all practical purposes in the minds of anyone, 
Does that not draw awfully close to the idea of the council deposing the Pope and saying, he's not the Pope because we say so? <clears throat> Does that not risk that, conciliarism? And if they were to say, well, he stopped being the Pope when he <clears throat> proclaimed his manifest heresy, when he pronounced it, when he professed his manifest heresy, then he stopped being the Pope, which could have been five, six, seven months before, could have been a year or two before. Um, but does this also not raise a specter, a practical problem, um, that I would actually appreciate Dr. Marshall and Ryan, and Ryan Grant addressing, maybe from the writings of St. Robert Bellarmine, because they're, they're more, well, Ryan Grant is certainly more conversant with them than I am. <clears throat> does this not raise all the, the specter that if you got the body of bishops together, I mean, even, even abstracting from the idea of we're talking about a Novus Ordo hierarchy here, modernists, mm -hmm. right? Died in the world modernists, chosen for their modernism by Francis and so on. That if these bishops got together, even in normal times, that they would disagree. That the question of whether or not the Pope was a manifest heretic would have to be decided by them in council and it could be that two-thirds of them believe, yes, that he's, he's guilty of manifest heresy, he's pertinacious, uh, he clings to that, he will not surrender that and profess the true faith. And a third of the bishops would say, no, we don't, think, we don't see it that way. Well, then what do you do? What are people supposed to make of that? A third of the bishops don't agree that he's a manifest heretic. So simply saying, well, we just call a council and the bishops would decide it. It's not that simple. And whether, you know, the theologian Cajetan says so, or St. Robert Bellerman, you know, says, well, we'd have to have a council to decide this. There are certain very practical problems that are involved with this. And one could see coming out of this a schism, if the bishops themselves could not agree, mm -hmm. whether a pope, in fact, was professing <clears throat> manifest heresy. So it's, it's, not, it's not simple. I realize that they're, they're concerned at least my understanding is they're concerned that it's not up to an individual person to decide for himself whether the Pope is a manifest heretic, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, and I, I understand that. I mean, I understand that that is a cause for concern, right? But on the other hand, if a person personally is convinced that a Pope is a manifest heretic, um, even though there's been no declaration of any council, that he personally is convinced, as a matter of conscience, it's a manifest heretic. And these writers of the church say it is perfectly Catholic to believe that he loses the papacy at that point. Um, well, then, what is a person to do? He can follow his conscience as a Catholic, then, with that understanding. I would think, one might say, well, you, uh, the, it's not up to the individual to, pro, to declare even for himself personally, that the Pope is a manifest heretic. Because he's not a manifest heretic until it is made official by a council of the church. And my response to that would be, okay, well, I, I, I see your point, but I would ask you to see my point too. There are problems, practical problems with that too. Uh, in actually executing that decision, or even re-arriving at that decision. So... Um, Anyway, it's, it's not as easy as it seems, but I, I think people have to, have to um, 
recognize, as I say, uh, from what Dr. Marshall and Ryan Grant have said there, from St. Robert Bellarmine, that there are different positions that are perfectly Catholic, that the Catholic people with the faith can hold. And uh, just because it might contradict another person's position, it doesn't make them non-Catholic. It doesn't make either of them non-Catholic. Um, so, I mean, personally, I, I agree with St. Margaret Bellarmine in this and so many others who say that a pope who becomes a manifest heretic loses the papacy because he lost the faith. Um, as far as how to apply that in the practical order to the individual and to the church in its entirety, uh, I, I see problems with the the calling of a council to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And especially under the circumstances today, right. yeah. there's a unique problem which renders it almost out of the question, impossible. Uh, which would then put us in the third position, which is what Tim Robert Bellarmine says no one, no one holds to. That a pope can be a manifest heretic, but there's nothing you can do about it. So this is a problem. The church is in, in serious, serious uh, straits today and uh, perhaps more serious than even at the time of the Arian heresy. And uh, that's why it's, it's absolutely essential that the Catholic people hold on to the traditional faith, the traditional rites of the Mass and sacraments, and not follow the new way. Because, you know, the new way is the synodal way, and that's what takes us down the path of... Um, of you know bringing of becoming pagans by the so-called ecumenical and synodal process mm -hmm. we talked about that in a recent program i, I did myself uh, a very fine gentleman who's willing to um, get the cameras rolling late at night so i would do that and i actually apologized for that because i was not in good shape and i know that and it, it didn't come across very well I, it was obvious that i wasn't feeling well but I felt it was necess something necessary that needed to be dealt with, even if I wasn't uh, as well prepared for it. I had just flown in from uh, three days traveling the missions and uh, immediately became involved in, in pastoral responsibilities. I didn't have the time to prepare as I wish I'd had. But I, I hope people will uh, look beyond that if they do watch that video. It's, I think it's called uh, Francis's Magisterial Dreams. Uh, shaman priests for the Amazon, uh, and it talks about Francis's apostolic exhortation, kind of summing up the synod of the Amazon and what he dreams is going to come of it. You know, for our traditional Catholics, it would be a nightmare, mm -hmm. as a fine gentleman expressed to us uh, <laughs> shortly ago. Uh, in any case, I'm sorry. No, that's good, Father. We want to move on. I, I want to. I thank. I thank our writer though mm -hmm. for yeah. giving me a heads up on that. We do have a, a couple other uh, emails that are, are along those same lines in regards to that program. And this uh, this one's from a viewer who says, "I am one of your new viewers from Dr. Marshall, and I recently ingested a few dozen of your videos. I want to say that your way of explaining things is amazing, and you have answered many questions I have looked for everywhere. One question I still have is this." You mentioned that we may have doubt whether Francis is the Pope due to the common opinion of theologians, which is the fifth position of St. Robert Bellarmine. Yeah. But do we then need to worry about having been separated from the church for rejecting the authority of the Pope? Or is it avoided by us merely having the doubt? 
Well, if there is in fact a doubt, and not a, a spurless, scurrilous doubt, right, but an actual objective doubt based on reasons, you know, in fact and in principle, uh, in true Catholic principles, then one realizes that in in ignoring the doubt and following the the supposed authority, one is is at risk of following an anti-pope, essentially, someone who claims to be the Supreme Pontiff, but really isn't. And so one might ask yourself, well, there's a danger of rejecting, or uh, there's a danger of not accepting the authority of a, of a true pope, someone who might be a true pope, but there's also the danger of following a false pope and someone who doesn't have the authority of the papacy, as though he were the pope. And if one were to ask, well, which is the worst? Which is the worst of the, worst of the two positions? One would have to say that the, the only, uh, actually the lesser of two evils there, if you want to call it that, would be not following the authority, not accepting the, of the authority of a man who really was the Pope, until that doubt is resolved. Because as, one, as long as one has that, that rational, that objective doubt about the reality of that, that man having the authority of a Pope, one it must not obey that, in the sense that uh, one must not take that risk of uh, following what is essentially someone who is an anti-pope, in fact. Um, and one is not responsible morally for disobeying a, an uncertain command with doubtful authority behind it. There's no, there is no... Um, culpability in that, actually, when it's just being prudent and taking the safer course. But there would be culpability in following the commands of a doubtful authority, especially if that doubtful authority is commanding you to do things contrary to Catholic tradition, contrary to Catholic practice, contrary to Catholic faith. If that doubtful authority is commanding you to do things that contradict the voice of the Church of the past, it would be certainly culpable to follow that, that authority. Mm -hmm. In fact, if that, if, even, even if there was no doubt about the authority, it would still be sinful to follow that voice, which would contradict Catholic tradition. Um, because Catholic tradition is the higher authority. If, if I were to ask you, as I have in the past, I mean, where would you find the higher authority? in St. Pius X, when he was the Pope, or in sacred tradition. A Catholic would say, well, obviously sacred tradition, because that is the work of the Holy Ghost. And the papacy was established by Christ to confirm the brethren in fidelity to Catholic tradition and sacred scripture, right? right. Well, who had the higher authority during the reign of St. Pius V? Was it St. Pius V, or was it Catholic tradition? All Catholics would have to say Catholic tradition is the higher authority. The papacy exists to serve and protect that and to propagate that Catholic tradition. <laughs> Who has the higher authority? All the popes put together or Catholic tradition? Same thing. It has to be Catholic tradition. The papacy itself was cr established by Christ for the sake of safeguarding Catholic tradition. So if a pope were to attack that, he has no authority to do that. And immediately one would recognize that is not the voice of the shepherd commanding me to do that. Um, so I must reject that. 
So in I think I'm in answering the question here, perhaps I hope I am anyway, that it would not be wrong in any way to refuse the, the doubtful command of a doubtful authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it would be necessary, especially, especially when that doubt seems to be, or in fact is contrary to what the church has always taught in the past. Okay. Father, what, what do you make of, of this question of uh, state of Vicantism or a, a heretical pope in regards to the third secret of Fatima? There, there's been a lot of talk about yeah. that, that, um, you know, we, we most likely have not seen the, the true or the full text of the third mm-hmm. secret of Fatima, that it was somehow doctored, and the reason being is because it, it explicitly said something about this, this apostasy uh, in, in the church. And we had an email from a, a viewer who, um, who quotes a uh, Cardinal Chapier, the he says the papal household theologian for many years. He quotes him as saying the third secret of Fatima says that the apostasy in the church begins at the top. So does that uh, word top, does that refer to someone who occupies the chair of Peter as pope, but in fact was not really a valid pope? And that could possibly be one reason why we never got the real third secret of Fatima. What do you think it's about that? It certainly is possible. I mean, they talk about the fish rotting from the head, right? That's an old state of staying, because I think Holland, not mistaken. Um, but the, what, I, what was said about Fatima, that the apostasy would begin at the top, that means the highest authority in the church on earth. And yes, that would be in the Vatican. That'd be, in, that'd be, uh, that'd be with the papacy itself. That apostasy would begin there and spread from there. I, I don't see any other way to explain that, that that makes any sense at all. And it coincides with what we know the plans are of the Freemasons to infiltrate the church, as Dr. Marshall wrote about, actually recently, and to gain control of the papacy. I mean, we're, we're having this come from several, several different directions at once. And in the third secret of Fatima, that may very well be the gist of that that uh, that secret, you know, the the third secret of Fatima had some interesting peregrinations. It was written down twice. There's a longer version and a shorter version, evidently. Uh, it was finally actually sent to the Vatican, I think, under well, Pope Pius the Twelfth. And in 1960, when we understand that it was supposed to have been read, uh, John the Twenty Third was occupying the the. Uh, Papal apartments there. Uh, some would claim he wasn't the Pope either. You know, well, I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, I'm not ready to say that. But, but the fact is, the story goes, he called for the, the envelope. He opened it, read it, folded up the, 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 the pages with the third secret written out. He put, folded it up, sealed the envelope again, and said it is important not to, either it is important not to disturb the, the Catholic people with this, or it is, it is uh, not, it, uh, somehow we put it in such a way that we have to maintain the secrecy of this mm-hmm. because it would be uh, cause unrest among the, among the Catholic people. Well, it just so happens it was in 1960 that he conceived the idea of calling council, of summoning Vatican II. And I can't help but think that the, the juxtapos- juxtaposition of these two events is conceiving the notion of calling a, a council, Vatican II, and reading that warning from heaven coincided for a reason. And uh, that this was a warning to him, but he would not sound the alarm to the rest of the people. 
It's a, it, when we, one could almost imagine that he saw, okay, well, I can go with this or I can go with my idea. I can pursue my plan or I can take this warning. And he stuffed the warning back in the envelope, sealed it up and said, I'm going with my plan instead. And he did. And of course, the rest is history, as you know. Now, there have been those who have spoken out on the third secret. Supposedly, no, anyone who has been given uh, access to it has been warned that they must maintain silence about it. But there are those, like Cardinal Chappi, who have spoken out, who said, yes, I do. I have been told the third secret of Fatima, and this is what it concerns. I think even Benedict XVI talked about that at one point, um, about this idea of it emanating from the head. Um, so I don't think there's any doubt about that, uh, based upon what those who know have said, and what, what it all seems to coalesce with that idea that the attack on the faith, the apostasy, the great, I mean, we talk about the apostasy, he talks about apostasy, and we're reading St. Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, about the great apostasy. I mean, what could be a greater apostasy than that, right? An apostasy that, uh, that begins with the top authority in the church on earth, the church militant, and radiates out from there and infects everything. Mm. Now, that certainly meets the definition of a, a great apostasy. Mm -hmm. Father, do you think that Our Lady possibly could have offered any practical advice for Catholics if there was to be this, this great apostasy that emanated from the head? Do you think she could have offered any practical advice? If she did, what? I think what? Our Lady already did. I think everything Our Lady said at Fatima, publicly in her six apparitions, and also to Lucia, uh, to um, Jacinta, I'm sorry, while Jacinta was hospitalized. Um, those apparitions are, are, again, private, but they, are, they were still recorded. Okay, we know what was said there. I think Our Lady made it very clear that... Um, Terrible things would follow. She didn't mention the great apostasy necessarily, but she talked about the terrible tragedies that would follow. If her warnings were not heeded, she gave warnings as to what needed to be done. But I don't think Our Lady would necessarily give or have to give specific warnings about a great apostasy or whatever, because I think the Church throughout her history has told the Catholic people what to do in cases uh, where there is uh, massive confusion, let's say the, the lines of communications are cut by persecution or whatever, and what the church consistently throughout her tradition, throughout her history, has shown is that she wants her children, her Catholic children, to continue with the traditional faith and not to adopt any novelties time and time again when the church has been through this, and, and there's not been any moment of the church's history that has not um, involved this somewhere in the world. I mean, there's persecution and hardship and, and um, again, the communication, the lines of communication being cut, um, popes dying and months passing with another, without another pope being, a, being named. And uh, the church has been through some very, very hard times. And at every turn, she has always praised those who in times of uh, uproar, confusion, um, distress, um, temptation, 
the churches always praise those who have held on to the traditional faith because they have always come through those times, Catholics, and stronger Catholics for the hardship they have to endure and their resolute holding on to the Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic faith. It all goes back again to St. Paul, chapter, uh, chapter 2 of his second epistle to the Thessalonians. He talks about the coming of the Antichrist, and he sums that up at the end of chapter 2, that epistle, by saying that there will be those, the eclectoi, the, the elect, who will not be deceived when all mankind, all the rest of mankind is deceived by the blandishments and displays of the Antichrist. They will not be deceived. And he says why? Because they love the truth. And I think that's very important for us these days. To love the truth, to be offended by the lie. And this is the age, as Father Bocelli, Father Vincent Bocelli said it in Rome, when I had him as a professor there, this is the age of the great lie. He said, the big lie. That's what he said. I thought it was very interesting. And he explained what he meant by that, that lying has become the order of the day. And we see that, you know, from the Democratic Party through, throughout society, <laughs> right? Now we lie to justify virtually anything and everything. But it's not just, not just them. You know. mm. um, so, in any case, but the chosen souls of God who will not be deceived by the Antichrist, who will be the greatest deceiver in history, they will be immune to his venom, his venomous lies, because they will love the truth. And the grace of God will be there to remain steadfast. But then he says, hold fast to the traditions you have received whether in writing or by word of mouth. Well, there you have sacred tradition and sacred, tr sacred scripture, the two fonts of revelation, the very basis of the church and our faith, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. This is the, the remedy he prescribes to immunize one against the deceit even of the Antichrist. Well, we need to apply those now. We need to go back to Catholic tradition and hold on to the traditional Roman rite of mass, the sacraments, practice the faith as it, as it was before the revolution of Vatican II, before John XXIII declared the revolution. It's kind of interesting. John XXIII conceived the idea of calling Vatican II in 1960 when he refused to uh, announce the secret of Fatima, the third secret of Fatima. <clears throat> At the end of the council, according to Jean Guiton, who's a fairly public figure and fairly reliable in his statements, close enough to Paul VI. In fact, he was standing near Paul, with Paul VI when Paul VI closed Vatican II. And Jean Guiton said that Paul VI turned to him as he was about to read the closing documents of Vatican II, closing statement, that Paul VI turned to him and said, I'm about to sound the trumpets of the apocalypse. You go to the, you go to the apocalypse, the, what the, some call the book of Revelation, and you read the, about the sounding of the trumpets, and you know what that means. And the fact that Paul VI, knowing what he was doing, would say that, and then, then proceed. Well, when you, when you read what Jean Guiteau wrote about that, you can hear the wonder in his voice that, 
you know, how could you tell me that this is what you're doing? And they actually then go ahead and do it. <laughs> but uh, it was a revolution, Vatican II. And uh, so we have to return to the traditional faith, practicing the traditional Catholic faith. That means the traditional Catholic religion. Mm-hmm. And Father, you know, we, we've gotten a lot of, a lot of emails and a, a rather recurrent question we have is, you know, we talk so much about being a, a traditional Catholic, but what exactly does that mean? And I believe you, you've given a, a very good definition, a uh, precise definition of, of what you mean when you say a traditional Catholic. And I think that that, that bears repeating. So if, if you don't mind, Father, could you sum that up again where it's we have you know where we uh if i may <laughs> i believe that the three points are that a traditional catholic will will always and everywhere does what the church has always and everywhere done commanded mm-hmm. uh a traditional catholic will never do what the church has has always and everywhere forbidden but then there's also that that third kind of qualifying statement where um you know we we look to what the church has has done in times of crisis what the mm-hmm. saints have done in times of crisis and then we follow uh, their example and, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to kind of reiterate that, um, that, that definition mm-hmm. of what a real traditional Catholic well, you is. Know, Tom, we have done actually an entire show on that in the past. And maybe we should do that again now in light of all that's happening now. Sure. I, I'm afraid, well, you know, I tend to be prolix. Um, so I'm afraid really? we'll <laughs> still be here in time to start the next show. <laughs> sure. Get started here. So I'm a little bit wary of that. But I think it is a serious enough question what does it mean to be a traditional Catholic, that we probably would want to devote a little more time than we can right now to it. Okay. Though uh, the, your point is well taken, that I, I think it is a subject that should definitely be addressed again. So maybe we can make that the subject of the next show. Sounds good. Maybe. Well, Father, let's, uh, let's end with that. We, uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of emails, like I said. I think with, um, with the Taylor Marshall video, we've, we've gained a lot of subscribers and a lot of new viewers, I've noticed, from the email inbox. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we certainly welcome all of them. Welcome all of them, and uh, we will do our best to answer all the emails we can. So yes, well, Tom, I'm counting on you <laughs> to make sure we we do that. And so. I'm counting on you, Father. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, we'll both count on the Holy Ghost too. Sounds good to make that possible. Sounds good. And I thank our viewers, and mm-hmm. uh, thank you very much for being here. Sure. Thank you. And uh, spearheading the show. No problem. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.